today marks kind of a a transition period for us here at East Point. We, we recently finished the book of Jonah, and then when we finished that, we went into a, a three-week series on Bible translation, and I think that was a, a blessing for most of us. We learned some things maybe we didn't know before. So this morning, we're going to begin a verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts. I know I've been kind of hanging that out there as a big question mark. We're going to go through the book of Acts, and I chose that for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's a book on evangelism as we see the church birthed, and then we see the church grow. And of course, we've been working at our uh, ambition to reach out more to the community um, and to fulfill the Great Commission. And it also emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit. It's mentioned, I think, uh, around 50 times. And I think that's important because I think in fundamental churches, we kind of forget the work of the Holy Spirit. If you come from a more of a charismatic or a Pentecostal background, uh, it's made maybe too much of. There's a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of misapplication of what the Holy Spirit is. So we're going to spend some time learning exactly how He works and what we can expect. I entitled this series called The Power From On High because that's what Acts really focuses on is God and Jesus Christ working through the church in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to take a good look at that. Now, you might be thinking, well, this is Easter. We should have an Easter message, right? Pastors are always kind of, there's pressure to do something on Easter because there's people visiting and and all of that. And so um, when I I went to the Shepherds Conference in early March, I I wasn't sure what I was going to teach on, but I was thinking about Easter. And I happened to hear uh, an Easter or a message on Uh, a particular topic, and I thought, wow, that's a really good topic to think on and maybe to preach on. And so as I began my research then on where we were going to go in the next book, I noticed that our particular topic is covered in Acts chapter 1. So to use the metaphor, we're going to kill two birds with one stone. We're going to start off on our series this morning and also celebrate Easter. So most of us have heard of the atonement. It's a kind of a theological term that covers basically every feature of our Lord's saving work. And it includes a number of things. First of all, it includes his birth. We know that God had to become man uh, to become our substitute. Someone had to pay the penalty of sin. And so Jesus came to earth, took on humanity so that he might take on our sins and remove God's wrath. And then, of course, his life We don't think enough about that, but the Lord Jesus had to live a perfect life. Why? Because he had to fulfill the law, not only for himself, but he had to fulfill the law for us. The only way we can get to heaven is if we live a perfect life. And of course, none of us can do that, and we have to fulfill the law perfectly. And if we make one mistake, we start all over again. So we look at his life and we we appreciate the fact that he lived a perfect life, fulfilled the law completely, and in that, when we trust in him, the law is fulfilled in us by association with Jesus Christ. Then his death, of course, he had to die for our sins, he had to pay for our sins, Um, took all eternity and a few hours on the cross to pay for every single sin of every person who trusts in Christ. And then, of course, his resurrection, which is primarily what we celebrate at Easter. The Lord had to rise from the dead. 
because that proved that he defeated sin, death, and the devil. He defeated everything that would keep us from getting to heaven. That's the work of Christ. And his resurrection proved that his work was successful, that the Lord was pleased with that work. And so now those phases of our Lord's work is what we tend to focus on. And I say that because we have two holidays that we celebrate that work. We celebrate Christmas. What does that celebrate? His, his life, right? His birth and his life. So, so, so the holiday at Christmas focuses on that. And then we think of Easter. Easter celebrates what? His death, burial, and resurrection, right? Those are certainly essential and necessary events for salvation. However, I am declaring today that we need another holiday. And I don't mean just another day off. Why is that? Because there's one more event in our Lord's work that's often forgotten and ignored. And as I've done some informal research this week, we've forgotten this particular issue. It doesn't come to mind because there's no holiday in which we stop and celebrate this particular reality. Now, after Jesus was resurrected, he, he, re, he appeared to his disciples and to others for 40 days. So he sort of was in his resurrection body. He went around for 40 days. And at the end of those, those 40 days, at the end of that 40-day period, we find the third and final event, and that's his ascension, where he went back to heaven. Now, the ascension is no minor event. If we had have a holiday, we might focus on that, but we don't focus on that. So I'm declaring a holiday. 40 days from today is Ascension Day. By the way, as I did research on that, that is celebrated around the world, not very much, but it's certainly celebrated. So you can have the day off, tell your boss, your pastor said it's Ascension Day, and you won't be at work. Don't do that, you might get fired. I don't have that authority. But it's no minor event. In fact, it may be the greatest event of all of the events that we celebrate in Christ's atoning work. Why is that? Because the ascension is the culmination and it's the climax of all that Christ did on earth. It's the end of the story of his earthly ministry. It's like reading a novel and not reading the end of the book. Very, very important. Sadly, it's pretty much disappeared from the modern church. If we look back in history, though, we find that it was considered extremely important. If we look back in church church history, in fact, numerous creedal documents of the early church included the ascension. For example, in the first few centuries, the framers of the Apostles' Creed mentioned it. And it states that he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. We don't think about that much today. And I think primarily because it's not a holiday. The Heidelberg Catechism written in 1563 included it. The Westminster Larger Confession, which was written in 1647, was mentioned it. And so does the Shorter Catechism that was mentioned, written just a few years later. So in all these creeds throughout history, which are the essential important doctrines, the ascension was mentioned. So where is it today? And where is it when we celebrate Easter? Do we stop at the resurrection? We often do, and we shouldn't. 
So it's no minor doctrine. It's a major, major doctrine that's disappeared from modern times. So what I want to do this Easter is to rediscover the significance of that event. Because I think we'll leave here today being much more encouraged that we go just beyond the resurrection to the ascension of Christ into heaven. Well, it's found in chapter 1, so here's, my, here's the way I'm going to go about it. I usually lay some pretty significant background and grounding as we start a book, but I'm going to save that for next week. So we're going to just get into some verses and look at some primary verses this morning. So let me read the first 11 verses, and you can follow along. I'm reading out of the NASB. It says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. And he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. Verse 5, for John the Baptist, or John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Verse 8, but you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Verse 9, and after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who's been taken from heaven, uh, taken up from heaven, you, you, I'm sorry, this Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, the writer of Acts, who is Luke, the Apostle Luke, he opens with a reminder to Theophilus what he had written previously. Now, we don't know much about this man, Theophilus, other than his name means lover and friend of God. So he is a Gentile and most likely a believing Gentile. So what was the first account that Luke composed here? Well, it was the Luke of uh, the Gospel of Luke. And in it, Luke explained all that Jesus began to do and to teach. In the very last verses of that gospel, Luke told him, Luke told him that immediately prior to the Lord's ascension, the Lord had given his disciples a promise. He promised them that he, they would soon be baptized by the Holy Spirit, Luke 24, 48 through 53. So Luke now is picking up that same theme and that same promise as he starts Acts. So it ended there in Luke, and it's picking up the rest of the story in Acts. 
And it's fitting that he do so because the Lord's promise of the Holy Spirit is the foundation and it is the fountain of all that takes place in the book of Acts. We see mighty works of miracles. We see mighty works and boldness in, in gospel preaching. We see the advancement of the gospel. We see resistance. We see all these things. That is a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. Everything flows from that promise. And friends, in our lives, what we're going to see and learn and hear is that everything truly substantial and spiritual flows from the fountain of the Holy Spirit that we have if we've trusted Christ. So there's that much application to this book. In in verse 2, Luke gives a brief, brief summary by telling us that Jesus had been taken up. That is, of course, speaking of the ascension, and it took place 40 days after the resurrection. So if we do celebrate Ascension Day, it's 40 days from today. And again, it's been practiced throughout history, but kind of lost on the modern church. Now, between those two events then, he appeared to various people. He appeared, first of all, to the women. Remember, we focused on that in Matthew, how honoring that was, that they were the first ones to hear the resurrected Lord. And then he speaks to his apostles or his disciples. And finally, to a group of 500, he only appeared in his resurrection form to those who had trusted him as their Savior. So he meets with believers. Now, it was during that time then that he taught his disciples primarily about the kingdom of God. That was like a 40-day seminar where he was teaching them what the kingdom means and, and some of the details of the kingdom. He taught them that at some point in the future, he would return to set up his earthly kingdom, which is the millennial kingdom. We learned that in Matthew. That's the, that's the thousand years where Jesus Christ comes when he returns, and he's going to rule on the earth. The earth is going to be perfected. That's where the child can reach down into the viper's den. The, the sheep will lie down with the lion's. So everything, the sin, as far as the world is concerned, is gone. That's when he's going to rule. Now, in verse 4, Luke describes his final meeting with them, where he gave them a command, and he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Kind of a strange command. He says, you cannot leave Jerusalem. Why is that? They were to wait for the Father's promise. So he says, don't leave Jerusalem Stay here because you know the promise that the Father made to you. And that promise is found in 5 where he says that they'll soon be baptized by the Holy Spirit. We'll see that in Acts chapter 2. Now some, if not all of them, have already been baptized by John the Baptist, but soon they're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. John's baptism was significant. It spoke of repentance. It was by water. It was physical and it was outward. John's baptism did not save people just like baptism doesn't save today. It pointed to the Savior. And so his baptism was primarily to Israel, but the Lord's baptism is going to include the Jews and the Gentiles in the church age, and the Lord's baptism is going to be spiritual and inward. So we see this major shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament where things are made alive and real, 
And they're animated in the heart in a whole different new way. And so we're going to see that transition, and that's what he's talking about here. Now, it's likely that that promise helped them or reminded them of what Joel taught in chapter 2, verse 28. Joel said, It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughter will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. They understood that Joel's prophecy here would occur at the point Jesus came to earth. Remember we talked about in Matthew of a term called prophetic foreshortening. So the events that are separated by time that we know from the New Testament are collapsed in the Old Testament. Why is that? Because the church is a mystery in the Old Testament. It's not clearly explained in the Old Testament. So it's like looking at mountains from one end and seeing them kind of lined up. They look very close together, but they're not. So they were thinking that maybe thinking this prophecy of Joel was indicating that the Lord was going to set up the kingdom while he was there with them. They were anticipating that the whole time. Hey, we got promises in the Old Testament. When a Messiah comes, he's going to set up the kingdom. Well, that's not what happened. So having suppressed their curiosity, or maybe discouraged them, he goes on to say that the kingdom had been fixed by the Father's sole authority. Only the Father knows the time. So they're all excited, and they, got to, they want to know, hey, when's the kingdom going to be established for Israel? And by the way, since they spent 40 days with him, that's not a question that was off. Because they were anticipating Israel receiving their kingdom, not the church. And so he doesn't correct them and say, well, you got the whole teaching wrong. He just says, it's not, it's not for you to know the times and the epics that the Father has established. Only the Father knows when that kingdom will be set up. So he tells them in verse 8 then that they're, they're going to be sent out to the world and they're going to be sent out as witnesses. It's going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to then go to, to Judea, then Samaria, and finally to the outermost parts of the world. But before they went, something had to happen. A major event had to happen. Before those men were sent out into the world to give the gospel to the world, something major had to happen. They had to wait and receive the power of the Spirit. So they're ready to go. He's about ready to send me. He goes, you got to wait. Because you need to be energized and empowered from on high if you're going to be effective. The power is that he's speaking of here is indispensable for Christian witness. You know, a man may be talented. He may be in, intensely trained. And he may be widely experienced. But without the spiritual power from on high, it's ineffective. And the same thing the other way. On the other hand, a man may be uneducated, unattractive, unrefined. And yet if he has the spirit of God in him, he will burn for God and God will do amazing things through him. So the disciples at one point were weak and fearful, and so they needed power from on high to do witnessing, to preach boldly, and to give the gospel without fear. 
And that happened at the time the Spirit came. They were transformed from weak, crying little babies to mature men that were willing to give their lives for the gospel. Friends, that is the power of the Holy Spirit. And nothing else can fix that. So those were his last words, and then we'll pick up the text in 9. Right before he ascended to heaven, he said this. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of sight. So as soon as the Lord gave them the, the, the great commission, basically, is the first great commission, that I'm going to send you out, immediately after he said that, he was lifted up. That's the ascension. He was taken up to heaven. Keep in mind, those are important last words. He left them with those men. This is what your mission is. You're not to worry about the coming of the kingdom. You're not to get all wrapped up and all focused on end time stuff. It's important to know that you have a job to do between the time of now and when I do return, and that's to witness for the gospel and cause of Christ. Friends, that's where we live. That's where we live. That's why we're here. And that's why we're trying to ramp up this effort. You may think the fresh fish fry isn't really an outreach. I, I would hope every one of you, if you can possibly be here, be here to talk to people. They're on our home court, right? And so we want to have conversations with them, right? Ask them where they go to church and what's their spiritual background. Thanks for coming and, and all those things that we can think about how to get into conversations. That is a mission right here at our church. We're going wherever the things held out here or in here. But we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the work of God in those conversations to have something happen if it's going to happen, right? I hope we're, I hope we're just, just made to understand that every single time we can give the gospel, do it. Don't be afraid. You have the Spirit of God in you. We might be thinking, well, I don't know what that means. Well, over the next four years, we're going to learn. However long that takes. So they saw the whole thing, by the way. And they're, as they're speaking to them, two angels showed up, right? As the Lord was disappeared into the cloud, two men showed up. Look at verse 10 goes on to say that they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going. Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. Where'd they come from? They just appeared. They were mesmerized. Their eyes are transfixed in the sky toward the Lord's disappearance. And as they were staring, suddenly these angels came up and stood beside them. By the way, it's possible these could be the same two angels that appeared at the tomb following the resurrection. We don't know. And look at 11. They speak. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? What kind of a question is that? <laughs> right? I mean, their Lord's talking to him, giving him instructions, and he floats off the ground and goes up into the sky. They're shocked. They're amazed. And so they ask, what are you doing? Why are you looking up there? Well, they, they knew. The disciples were awestruck. They were perplexed. And I think also Scripture reveals that they were extremely sad their Savior is leaving them. The one who was steering the boat for three years has left the helm. 
And so they're there. So I think they were probably pretty filled with sorrow. So the angels gave them this encouragement. Then Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you watched him go into heaven. You see, here's what he's telling them. You don't need to be grieved. You don't need to worry. Don't panic. Because the Lord's coming back. See, we don't want to celebrate just his going today. We don't want to celebrate him just being resurrected, as awesome as that is, and that's important. We don't want to stop there. What holiday are we going to celebrate the fact that he raises up and he's ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father and then he returns? We need two more holidays to cover that, right? This was a a monumental uh, event it's as important as his death, his birth, death, and resurrection, and yet we get so little attention to it. And I would argue that it's almost more important because it is the end of the story. It's the culmination. It's the exaltation of Christ, of all that he did in perfect obedience to the Father. The Father was going, amen, come up to heaven with me and sit at my right side. It's an awesome event. Where is it gone? So I want to draw our attention to its importance by giving you three reasons, at least three, why it should be celebrated. First of all, it signaled the Father's satisfaction. Again, we often attribute the Father's approval to the resurrection, and it is true. He was raised to life because he committed his life to die for our sins. But it's also true that because Jesus humbled himself by dying on the cross, that God took him to heaven. The Father exalted him, according to Philippians chapter 2, by giving him a name that's above every name. I'm not sure I understand that. But at the time that he died, when he was resurrected and he was taken to heaven, the Father gave him a new name, above a name above every single name that there is. And that name... Every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess that he's exactly who he said he was, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I ask you this morning, is he your Lord? Are you bowing now in confession to him? Are you bowing now recognizing that he's Lord over your life? Because that doesn't just happen when we get before him when we stand before him in the, in the final moments. Is he your Lord? Are you living for him? Does he make a difference? Has he changed your life? One of the things that has, well, there's a number of things that grieve me at Easter. And one of them is all these commentators and all these people come out and they talk about the resurrection of Christ. Some of them are theologians. Some of them are high positions in the church. And why is it that they're not mentioning the whole gospel? Why is it they're not talking about sin? Why is it they're not talking about judgment? They're just talking about the fact that Jesus rose for everybody. It's amazing. If I had millions of people listening to me, or you had millions of people listening to you, what would you say? I would have to say, friends, we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. And we have no hope apart from Jesus Christ, from faith in Him, for faith in Him. 
in Christ alone, apart from works, because judgment is coming. Isn't that the message? That's the message. It's got to include the bad news. And these guys just, just pass over all that. It's amazing. They have an, op- they have an opportunity. Ugh. They have the privilege of having millions listening to them. Say it. Give the gospel. Don't do the Easter version of it. Give the gospel. The real gospel. The whole gospel that has the power to save. Amen? So every knee is going to bow before this Lord and every tongue is going to confess that He's Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. So the ascension then is the ultimate amen to His finished work. Not just the resurrection. It includes that. But that's not the end. He had to go back to heaven. And we'll see why that's so crucial. And again, why we don't celebrate that, I don't know. He'd completed his work. The Father was pleased with him. And he had to be exalted back to glory. He died as a criminal, at least looking like a criminal on the cross. He looked defeated. He was resurrected, of course, and appeared to only a few people, only believers. But when he's exalted to heaven, he's finally exalted to the position that he deserved. And that's a name above every name. There's a second reason the ascension is so important, and that is that it triggered the sending of the Holy Spirit. This is really, really important. So Jesus wouldn't let him leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit descended, but that couldn't happen until Jesus went back to heaven. Now, that had to seem a little strange. Wait a minute. It's good that you're leaving us? Maybe they didn't connect what he mentioned about the Holy Spirit. Well, the answer that we're given, we find in John 16, 7. He says, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the departure of Christ, put yourself in their shoes. They've been following him, leaning on him. He's been correcting them the whole time. He's been protecting them the whole time. And suddenly he's gone. So that had to be painful and difficult. But what the Lord is telling him is painful and difficult things often bring joy and glory. And that's what happened here. Because he says, if I go away, it's going to be to your, notice, advantage. The Greek word means that there's something necessary in order to achieve a particular end. He's telling them then, which had to be a shock, it's going to be for your benefit if I leave you. And again, they had to be thinking, how is that possible? You've been here. We're leaning on you. You're protecting us. We're looking to you for teaching. And, but the Lord is handing that off to apostles. And he has, friends, handed that off to who? Us. This text is for us as well. He says, if he doesn't go away, the helper will not come. 
Helper there is the word parakletos, and it's a word used for legal assistance in pleading a court case. I saw that, how important that was recently in a court case that I was involved with as the advocate, our attorney, went before the judge and laid out the case. Well, I tell you, I, I, uh, I will have to say this, as, as disappointed as I am at the national level of justice, we've got a good one here. It was honorable. It was careful. I was, I was really greatly encouraged. But I was especially encouraged that we had an advocate to help us and to lead the process. It's translated counselor in the Holman Christian Study Bible and the NIV, good translation. The King James translates it comforter. All those are correct. But if Jesus goes away, the Holy Spirit will come. If he doesn't go away, the Holy Spirit won't come. So he goes on to say, but if I go, then I will send him to you. So it's an advantage then for the disciples and for you and I that Jesus go back to heaven, that he's ascended into the heavens and that he has sent his spirit. Now, why is that necessary? How does that work practically? Okay, God's going to go to heaven. He's going to send his Holy Spirit. And that's to help us to receive power in witness. To receive power in witness. I want you to look one more time at Acts 1.8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. It starts very small. It would start with, with Peru. It would go to Kokomo. It would extend all the way to Belize and all the way to Haiti and Ethiopia if we ever get there. Some people have asked me why we're paying attention or spending money to go around the world that's why. It's the expectation of our Lord. And what a privilege it is. What a privilege it is. We're going to get to go to Belize and spend four days teaching them the essentials of the faith. A lot of them are pastors. They've not been trained. So it's going to be like a short seminary course for them. What a blessing that is. And think of, the, think of how that's going to transform their people when they begin to teach better and know the Scriptures. That's why we spend money at that. Yes, it's expensive, but that's why we spend money there. Missions is very important to us, and I think you're finding that it's becoming more important, and it should be the heartbeat of our church. And we're getting there. We're growing in that. So I'm greatly encouraged. So they were about to be sent out to, be, to fulfill the Great Commission, and because of that, they needed power from on high. The word power there is the word dunamis, and it's where we get the English word dynamite. Now, I, as I thought about that word and I thought about the description and what that means in my life, have you experienced the dynamite power of Christ? I think our expectations of the mystery and power of the Holy Spirit should, should be elevated. And I think since we're a pretty conservative church, we probably haven't spent enough time thinking about what does that look like? What would that look like as I'm standing by my neighbor and I'm, I'm a little afraid to speak up, I'm afraid of offending them, I'm afraid of what they're going to think. What does that look like? 
I'll tell you what, when we're filled with the Spirit, it will be boldness. The apostles prayed for boldness that they might speak the truth. What a great prayer we could all be praying for one another. I see a bunch of you that are at different businesses, and, and I know you've had conversations. Maybe we ought to be praying that for the whole body. God, give us the boldness and the courage this week to talk about Christ. All of us who've placed our faith in Christ have been given the dynamite power of the Holy Spirit. We have to think about what does that look like? How many of you have experienced this? Maybe you're a parent, maybe you're a grandparent, or maybe you're just a poor child, and you've gotten a gift at Christmas that needs batteries, and they've forgotten the batteries. How many disappointed people have we had on Christmas morning, right? We got smart. We started taping batteries to the toys, right? You ever had that happen? Well, that's by illustration of what the Holy Spirit does in our life. If we give our children a toy that doesn't have a battery that's designed to be operated and energized by that battery, what happens if there's no battery? It doesn't work. And so the ascension then promises that if we trust Christ as our Savior, we'll receive that battery. And we will operate as the architect designed us to operate. A toy on Sunday morning that's to be operated by a battery that doesn't have a battery is worthless. And it just put off to the side with disappointment. We've been given that battery. And that should, that should propel us, that should compel us, that should move us when we're filled with the Spirit, when He's active in our lives, to be talking about Christ, sharing our faith with people. We'll see how that works again in the day of Pentecost. The disciples are transformed. And that's due to the work of the Spirit that enters their life. Now, it's true the Holy Spirit has been in the world since the very beginning. In Genesis 1-2, He was there kind of moving over the surface of the water. So He was there at creation. So He's always been in the world, but when Jesus ascended, the Spirit would come in a new way. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would come on people. It was called endowment, and it was empowering them to, to fulfill certain, um, um, certain work that they were supposed to do, like, like building the temple. But in the New Testament, now that Christ has died and ascended, we get the Holy Spirit upon faith, and it seals us. Yes, seals us as a guarantee of a deposit guaranteeing our eternal life. You cannot lose that sealing. It's a deposit guaranteeing that we'll get to heaven and a deposit that energizes us, encourages us, and moves forward. And that's all because Christ left and was ascended to heaven. The architect is the plan. Jesus came to establish it and offer the plan, and the Holy Spirit is here to apply that plan. All three of the Trinity is involved. So how does that help us witness? Letter B. It awakens conviction. That's how He helps us. No one would be saved if the Holy Spirit wasn't sent into the world. We could talk, we could debate, we could argue, we could do everything that we possibly could do to explain the Scriptures, but if the Holy Spirit wasn't involved, nothing would happen. And friends, I imagine a lot of your conversations, you experience that. 
where you share the faith, you talk about God, and nothing happens. You know what that tells us? At that moment, the Holy Spirit's not working in that life. John or Jesus told Nicodemus, it goes wherever it wants, man. It's like the wind. You can't control the Spirit. We can't demand that the Holy Spirit do anything. He's sovereign, just like Jesus and the Father. In John 16, 8, it explains how he brings conviction and what he does. And he said, and, 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 and he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning, concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the Holy Spirit then, when Jesus ascended, was sent into the world to assist us in one primary activity, and that is to convict. Friends, this is so important. And it's all because Jesus ascended into heaven. As we share the gospel then, the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us and brings convictions on the heart of the elect. When he chooses, and when he chooses. Notice that he convicts in three ways. First of all, he reveals their sin. I thought we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to share what sin is, right? Only the Holy, only, only the Holy Spirit can, can bring the reality of that sin to, the, to their conscience. We can't do that. God uses us, but we can't ultimately create that. And then he shows them their need for righteousness. And finally, the conviction that there will be judgment. This is our parakletos. This is the power of God coming alongside of us, helping us when we speak the words of the gospel to bring conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And we cannot do that, but the Holy Spirit can as we're speaking. I illustrated to somebody this week, it's not a real romantic visual, but we're like a long hose. How does that water get from the spout of the house out to the plant? Well, I doubt any of us are going to take out our hoses this spring and go, wow, did you see the work of that hose? I mean, it was a beautiful thing. They're not. They get tangled and they're irritating, just like us, right? But that hose is the vehicle that carries the life in that water, that water of life. And so all we have to do is just be faithful and depend on the Holy Spirit to bring conviction in a life that we can't do. We can, show, we can show sin, we can point out sin, we can talk about sin, we can talk about the need for righteousness, we can talk about the, the reality of judgment coming, but only the Holy Spirit can massage that into their heart so that it becomes real. That's how people get saved, is they experience that reality. I want you to pay attention to the order because this is, I think, very significant. It's the exact order of the gospel. First of all, number one, he convicts sinners of their sin and that they fall short of God's glory. That's where the gospel begins. It begins with the bad news that they're sinners and they don't meet God's expectations and they can't get to heaven on their own. 
And you can't get there by baptism. And you can't get there by works. And you can't get there by doing any kind of ceremony or avoiding certain sins. There's no way we can get there. That's where it starts. And if we're given the gospel that way, the Holy Spirit is hopefully working with us as we do that. Then then, then number, number two, he convicts He convicts that reality that unbelievers are sinners and that they need an alien righteousness. You need something else. You need the righteousness of Christ. You you, you don't need to be self-improved. That won't do it. God looks down and goes, that's not good enough. You need the very holiness and righteousness of my son and nothing less will, will count. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And then thirdly, the Holy Spirit convicts them that if those previous truths are rejected, they will fall under judgment of God's wrath. The Holy Spirit has this order. Give the gospel in that order. Talk about sin, need for righteousness. And by the way, if you reject that, judgment's coming. We need to line up our presentation with the work of the Holy Spirit. So what does this tell us then? Without the ascension, there would be no power to witness, there'd be no salvation, and no church. And so the Lord's ascension shows us two things. His earthly ministry was finished, and that the Father was totally satisfied, and it also triggered the sending of the Holy Spirit to assist us in our witnessing by convicting those we witness to of their need for Christ. And we've forgotten this? We need a third holiday. Now, his sending then of his spirit has a third benefit, and that is to do greater works. That sounds kind of odd, that we can do greater works than Christ, but it's true. Look at John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me The works that I do, he will do also. And notice, greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Again, a benefit that he goes away and he sends the Holy Spirit. He tells us that because he went to the Father, we're going to do greater works than he did. Now, what does that mean? Is he talking about miracles? No, We're not told to do miracles. We can't do miracles. That was a sign of one of the apostles. So that's not what he means. What he means is not that our greater works of quantity, but our greater works, or not of quality, but greater works of quantity. We're not going to do better works qualitatively. But quantity, we're going to do greater greater work. Since Jesus left then and sent his spirit, we're capable of doing more in terms of quantity than Jesus did as an individual in Jerusalem. He never personally ministered here in Peru. He didn't go to Haiti, and he didn't go to Belize. We are. And it's in that sense that Christians have indeed done greater works than our Lord did. So it is to our advantage that he go away. Now, Our passage gives us a a third reason why the ascension was important. It guarantees, models, and encourages us that he will return. This is what we celebrate this morning. He's resurrected, he's ascended, but he's going to return. After he ascended, the angels gave a very important prophecy. Let's look at it one more time in Acts 1.11. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way 
as you watched him go to heaven. Now, now notice that they tell us that he will come. That's a future indicative. It's a prophetic certainty that he is coming back. That had to be good news, of course, to his heart-sick disciples. Now, what will his return look like? Well, his ascension and his return are going to be very similar. Letter A, both will be visible. Both will be visible. Just as the disciples saw him ascend into heaven, the world will see him return to earth. So Acts 1.11 says that they watched him go to heaven. And so he will also return visibly in Matthew 24.30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. So both are literal. Both are true. There's a position called preterism comes from the Latin meaning past, and they would believe that Jesus came in 70 A.D. Problem is, Jesus didn't come visually in 70 A.D. That wouldn't make sense. So I don't see how that can be correct because he didn't ascend in 70 A.D., and if we spiritualize his literal, visible return, then we have to spiritualize his ascension. And now we've wiped out the gospel. Secondly, we see that both occur on the Mount of Olives. This is clear from Acts 1.12. They said they returned to Jerusalem. That's coming from the Mount of Olives or the Mount called Olivet. So that's where Jesus was lifted up. And he's going to return in the same place, according to Zechariah 14.4. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Listen, friends, that little area in Jerusalem is the most important place in the universe. That's where they were given the Great Commission. That's where Jesus ascended. And that's exactly where he's coming back. And we believe it's literal that his feet are going to stand on the Mount of Olives and the land's going to split. So that's what it tells us in Revelation. Now, there's one more feature that I want to touch on that really gets almost no attention. Just as the Lord entered heaven, something else significant occurred. Theologians call it the session which means that he's seated. That's what it means in the Latin. It comes from sessio, which means to be sitting. Now, the New Testament pictures our Lord in various postures. In Acts and Revelation, he's standing ready to act. In Revelation 2.1, he's in the midst of his church. Later in Revelation, he's riding a horse to battle. But it's more regularly expressed that his position is as sitting at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 1.3 says that in his radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power, when he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, why did he sit? This is something we almost pay no attention to. It's very significant, and it's very significant what it means. It doesn't mean that he's resting as if he's tired. When God rests, it means he's finished. 
We see that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. God rested at creation, not because he was tired, it's because he finished. So Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father here, which tells us that redemption is complete. Listen carefully. Any church today, any denomination today, any religion today that is saying that man has to do something to save himself is a contradiction of what Christ did. And it's a contradiction of him being seated at the right hand of the Father. Because it says, it's done. There's nothing else we can do. As I mentioned just a second ago, it's also important to notice that he's sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's God the Father. That places him in a place of ultimate honor, ultimate power, ultimate authority. It's his answer to his high priestly prayer in John 17. When he said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So the ascension then and the sitting of Jesus at the right hand of the Father is one of the most significant events ever because at that point he regains his glory that he voluntarily gave up by veiling himself in flesh. That's the end of the story, folks. Folks, he's, he's sitting, sitting with the Father in complete glory, in complete power, in complete ruling ability, in all the authority of the universe. There he is. So we don't leave him this Easter just rising from the dead, as significant as that was. In 40 days after that, he's enthroned with all power and all authority. So what does that mean then for us this Easter? I'm going to skip a couple slides, running short on time. It means everything. It's the climax of his mystery, of his ministry. And that, friends, listen, that means, listen carefully, because this is where the application comes. <laughs> this is where your encouragement comes. That means that you and I can leave today knowing that Jesus is alive and that he's ruling all things after the counsel of his will. We are assured of this. We are guaranteed victory because our Lord and Savior is enthroned on high at the Father's right hand. This Easter, don't just picture him as resurrected. As great as that is, picture him as seated with all authority, all power, Infinite knowledge, ruling everything on earth, and interceding for you and I, the church. We can, we can leave here today, listen, we can leave here today confident that we are victorious because our Lord and Savior is enthroned. It doesn't matter what happens here on earth. Our Lord has it. He has it. That's the good news. There may be some bad news. Maybe this morning, you're celebrating Easter. You're celebrating the holiday, but you don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, today can be the day. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Has your life changed? Listen, do you have an interest in God's word? Do you have an interest in God's people? Do you have conviction of sin and you want to confess it to the Father in prayer? 
Has your life changed? Is that God sitting on the throne, your God? So simple. Forget all the junk that you hear on TV. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Be willing to repent, to turn from your life, and to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. That is Easter. And he's sitting on the throne right now, looking down, and it's your choice at this point to believe. Amen? Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, for Easter, and we thank you for his birth. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his death. We thank you for his resurrection. And this morning, we're thinking of his ascension and session, that he accomplished all that you had and did it perfectly and is now in heaven enthroned for his church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.